Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest podcast. One of the areas that is of uh, highest interest these days is radiation dose. And radiation is, of course, a very important topic that we'll discuss in a moment. But one of the areas where it's particularly important is in pregnant patients. And the question always is, is should you scan a pregnant patient? If you do scan a pregnant patient, what do you need to tell them? What are the risks? You know, what's the whole philosophy? And uh, I work very closely with the Department of OB at Hopkins. And this question always comes up. And they ask me if I can give them a grand rounds just to put radiation in perspective, what they should know, what they should be doing, what they should inform the patients of. And when people ask you to do something and you do it, you actually have to at times read more than uh, you maybe have read before. So it gave me the opportunity to look carefully at this topic. And that's what I'm going to share with you today. And what I'll do first is kind of, this will be a two or three part uh, vodcast, but I'll first take a step back and cover some things that we probably have covered in part in prior podcasts, which is this whole issue about CT and radiation dose, sort of the fact and the fiction, the myth and mythology, cover that as a way of leading into the specifics of the pregnant patient. Okay, so let's get started. Just some magic numbers we've mentioned before, the number of imaging studies worldwide, which is higher than it was in 2007, but you can see 3.6 billion medical imaging exams um, with ionizing radiation, the majority being radiologic, and that's worldwide. And of those numbers, about uh, 10% or so is done in the United States, 377 million diagnostic studies and 18 million nuclear medicine studies. So the US is about 12% of radiologic procedures, but over one half of nuclear medicine procedures. And that's because we do a lot of stress testing in the US and uh, in great parts of the world, like Germany, for example, it's never done, it's not even reimbursed. So that's an important thing to consider, but lots of examinations. And of course, the thing that's always brought is, up is that the per capita annual effective dose has increased from 0.5 millisieverts to 3 millisieverts. And 1980 is a year when body CT was first being introduced in most places. So it really relates to CT. And other articles have shown that CT is the primary uh, mover in terms of radiation in the United States and worldwide. So this is probably no great surprise. And if you look at some of the numbers, again, it's always hard to look at what specific effective doses are per study. But here's one article by Dave Dow a couple years ago when CT was newer. Um, and you can see CT doses were a bit higher in those days. But just to give you some feel of the numbers, body CT, 8 to 11 millisieverts. And again, this chart also made the point that it wasn't just CT that was an issue in terms of dose, but nuclear studies, which had far higher dose than CT did even in the beginning. And of course, when I go to the next slide, and I'll make the point that uh, Here's some more recent values that cardiac CT, we typically do cardiac CTs in the 1 to 3 millisievert range these days, and the days of 15 to 18 millisieverts are gone. So uh, a big thing that, of course, is the fact that we are making progress in all these areas. But again, this is some you know relatively good numbers to use. Now, effective dose is a very important concept. At times, people take effective dose, and they turn that into people getting cancer and what happens to an individual patient. And Christy McCollum makes this point in this article in AJR a few months back, that effective dose is not the risk for any one individual. Due to inherent uncertainties and oversimplifications, effective dose should not be used for epidemiologic studies or for estimating population risks. So again, you got to be careful what numbers mean. Now, 
I've shown you the next two articles, but two articles that really got very involved uh, and made the public eye were the two articles by Einstein and the article by um, one of the other people, Brenner. And both of these articles basically were essentially the same thing. They looked at cardiac CT as it was coming along and saying, my God, if we do cardiac CT in patients, the risk factors from high doses uh, you know, could cause all sorts of issues. Lifetime cancer risk estimates for car standard cardiac CT, 1 in 143 for a 20-year-old and 1 in 3,261 for an 80-year-old male. Again, we typically weren't doing cardiac CTs in 20-year-olds, but nevertheless, those were the numbers quoted. And, of course, these were estimates derived from a simulation model. And I want to make the point, it's a simulation model. If you go to, and I'm going to come back to that in 30 seconds, if you go back to Brenner's article, on the basis of such risk estimates and data, it's risk estimates, it's not fact of actual patients, it's, it's estimates. And in his article, he made the point that uh, based on switching around a bunch of numbers, you might end up with the fact that up to 2% of patients in the U.S. getting cancer have gotten it because they got a CT scan. Now, that is totally ludicrous. Then he even goes even more further uh, you know, if we say that the third of medical scans are not justified and it appears more than likely than 20 million adults and a million children are getting unnecessary radiation. Now, I think we all know that we need to be much more specific as to when we do studies and we're all doing the best we can. So these numbers kind of just kind of come out of the sky. But again, you're making this assumption. And what's the assumption based on? The assumption is based on this extrapolation essentially from the Hiroshima event. I think everyone would agree that Hiroshima was a unique experience. It was an atomic bomb. It wasn't like getting a CT scan. There were many different radiation doses. You radiated a population that was very ill. The average person in Japan and Hiroshima at the time of the bombing was malnourished. And radiation effects on a malnourished population are going to be significantly different than in a healthy population. But that's never really looked at. And in fact, let's go further. And with radiation, I think one of the things that the American College of Radiology has not done well is we become very defensive. I think we need to become very scientific. What I mean by that is we all know you want to minimize the radiation dose, but you need to look at the risks of dose from a scientific perspective. Two really good articles that nobody ever quotes from radiology, our main journal. It was kind of a pro-con article, and the first article by Literal spoke about that with radiation, what we do is we look at a linear approach. And it's and look at the title, Why Linearity May Be Almost the Best We Can Do. So right away it's questioning it. And the second article by another author, Tubano, says the linear no-threshold relationship is inconsistent with radiologic, biologic, and experimental data. That article has a million references with high science from articles in the best journals, and so I'll show you what the article said. So the first article by Little said, excess cancer risks obtained in Japanese atomic bomb survivors and in many medically and occupationally exposed groups exposed at low or moderate doses are compatible for most cancer sites. The dose response is compatible with linearity over the range observed. Well, there's lots of questions into that data. You know, people have written articles showing that there's no increased cancer rate in patients who have substantially higher backgrounds. For example, in the U.S., compare Baltimore to Denver, compare Baltimore to Santa Fe, there's no increased risks, although their background radiation is four to 
five times higher. This place in South America where the background is 20 times or more the U.S. and there's no higher cancer risk. In fact, there's lower. So there are many complicated factors regarding radiation and cancer. And so Tubano makes the point that the linear theory, it just basically is the equivalent of piling bricks on and saying cells have no defense. Well, the whole principles of radiation therapy for tumors is you damage and kill the bad cells. You may injure some normal cells in the process, but they tend to go back to normal because irradiated cells protect themselves by the immediate defense, repair and damage removal mechanisms, by delayed or temporary... Um, protection uh, irrespective of the causes that it is through adaptive responses and they also go back and make the point that the fears associated with the concept of linear no threshold model and the idea that any dose even the smallest is carcinogenic lacks scientific justification and says again that among humans there is no evidence of a carcinogenic effect for acute radiation at doses less than 100 millisieverts and for protracted doses of less than 500 millisieverts and finally concludes, look, that the LNT model was useful a half a century ago, but current radiation protection concepts should be based on facts and concepts consistent with current scientific results and not on opinions. Preconceived concepts impede progress. In the case of the linear model, they have resulted in substantial medical, economic, and other societal harm. So again, let's look at the science and not get emotional about the process. And so when you look at other physicists, so again, Christy McCullough, our purpose here is to discuss medical justification of the small potential risk associated with radiation and to provide perspectives on practice-specific decisions. So as she says very clearly in AJR, physicians must request the exam that best addresses the medical question without allowing worries about radiation to dissuade them or their patients for obtaining needed examinations. And again, it's also important to put risk in perspective. One thing I could tell you, remember that little famous quote from W.C. Fields that the only thing you can be sure about is death and taxes? Well, it is true. Everyone is going to die, and we all try to make that as late as possible and pay our taxes on time, of course. But it's a risk thing. So conservative estimates of risk show that the potential risk of dying from undergoing a CT is less than that of drowning in a pool or an ocean or of a pedestrian dying from being struck by any form of ground transportation both of which we consider to be extremely unlikely. So again, you can go outside and get run over by a car and get hit by lightning and you can go swimming and drown, but that's not stopping you from going swimming because it's a relative risk and you try to avoid those relative risk things. Ongoing efforts to ensure that CT are medically justified and optimally performed must continue and education must be provided to the medical community and general public that puts the potential risks and benefits of CT in proper perspective. Very, very good point. We need to order the right studies on the right patients and do the studies correctly. Now in saying that, the FDA is now involved because the FDA um, became concerned about the entire process and you can see this is from February initiative to reduce unnecessary radiation exposure for medical imaging I think what you'll see is you know different types of uh, maybe more controls we've met with the FDA they seem very uh, much interested in doing the right thing so should we have more uh, learning more teaching whatever it comes out to be again promote the safe use of medical imaging devices support informed clinical decision making and increase patient awareness and we're all in favor of all of those steps now even in the fda there's arguments 
this was from that article from March 2010, but sure enough, in October 2027, 2010, just yesterday, um, there's a whole argument about this report here that did the FDA ignore someone who said we shouldn't do virtual colonoscopy because it has radiation dose? By the way, the guy was a colonoscopist. So um, the FDA is going to be involved, and hopefully it will be involved in a very strong way. Now, there's so many things to look at also. Even within our practice, doing best practices, I think this article was from Duke, they made the point that when they looked at phantom data, and you're doing a brain CT, depending on the scanner you had, the dose would be different. And so the scanner that could tilt the gantry had a lower dose than the scanner that could not tilt the gantry. And they made the point that if the CT of the brain is performed with a dual source CT without gantry tilt, you'd have to be very careful to limit radiation by careful positioning. Because that scanner, they compared Siemens to GE, the Siemens scanner would give a higher dose for scanning the brain. But then on the other hand is that when you did pulmonary embolism, the semen scanner was better than the GE. So again, different scanners have different doses and even specific applications, one machine will be better than the other. Again, the optimal is to optimize each protocol for each machine. And of course, there's certain basic protocols, dose reduction strategies. We talk about doing the right study on the right patient. I make the point doing the study correctly the first time. Highest radiation doses, when you repeat the study the second or the third time, when the hospital's patient goes to hospital A and then hospital B and hospital C, getting many examinations that could have been solved by doing the study right the first time. So study protocols, we speak a lot on CTSS about protocols, and of course study interpretation. And again, that's a very important thing. There's many dose reduction strategies. This article by McCullough makes the point that there are many strategies from beam filtration to collimation to optimizing the KVP, noise reduction algorithms. All of those things are being built into scanners and it's important for us to use them correctly. And also newer things, something called ACER, this uh, iterative reconstruction. Siemens and GE are both pushing it. The fact that you can do post-processing of data so you can lower the dose and with the post-processing get equal quality data sets and potentially um, you know, decrease dose again between 20 and 50 percent. Downsides of ACER, it costs money and you do uh, takes longer but the taking longer is a small amount of time even 30 percent is all relative and with computers that numbers should hopefully uh, become a lot less in the future. Now it's important to also to realize that you need to be very careful. Just lowering dose alone, that's easy. The question is how do you lower dose and get quality studies? Great article by Melvin Cohn is a pediatric radiologist. The objective of his article, is there a risk of lowering the radiation exposure so low that the risk of missing a diagnosis from excessive noise in the image begins to exceed the risk of the radiation itself? And his point is very well taken. Two risks in radiation, the first well recognized and spoken about cumulative risk of increased incidence of cancer secondary to radiation. The little discussed second risk is of missing a diagnosis because of suboptimal image quality as a result of too low radiation exposure settings. So you need to have an adequate dose and you need to make a confident diagnosis. So when you're doing your protocols, you need to balance the perspective between image quality and low dose. So it's not as easy as things would seem. Now in radiology, as you know, we're pushing forward. Image Gently campaign is moving forward. 
good article published in AJR a couple months ago talking about the 10 steps that can be done and I won't go through these in any great detail but things just increase awareness with the doctors and the techs and become very important accreditation quality assurance becomes very important selecting the right studies doing the studies correctly making sure you have different doses for children and adults and different doses for big kids and small kids and different protocols for large patients and skinnier patients so again optimizing scanning the area in question doing single phase when necessary dual phase only when necessary and again these are 10 steps everyone in your department should read the article text docs nursing okay so now I've kind of gone through with you part one of this talk which is where we stay with radiation but now what happens what about the pregnant patient and that's the toughest area because now it's not just the patient who's a younger patient that's one issue but you have a fetus on board fantastic article as I started working on this just published by Wesseler the risk burden of radiation exposure to the fetus has to be weighed carefully against the benefits of obtaining a critical diagnosis quickly and using a single tailored exam. That is the crux of the issue. And that's where I'm going to start next week. See you then.